0: You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now... Here is more to the story.
1: Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast, our Christmas episode in September.
2: <laughs> so, but, Hey, we are doing Operation Christmas Child live in yeah, real time. So,
3: Once the weather starts to get a little cool in the mornings, I mean, I feel like it's completely appropriate for being Crosby to cross the airwaves.
1: Yeah, no, we have one, we have one 40 degree day and all of a sudden Drew's playing Christmas music. <laughs> I'm wearing flannel and sweaters. Yep. Don't worry, it's back to the mid-80s here. So, <laughs> with us today, Pastor Darren Enns, how you doing today?
2: Hey, everybody, doing great. Pastor
3: Drew
1: Tarwater, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, guys. Good to be with you. And I'm Rob Blasey with my jingle bells. So, wow. today we're talking... You always have bells on. <laughs> so, people know I'm coming. I'm a big target. Uh <laughs> talking about the birth of Jesus in September. So, uh, mm-hmm. Drew, can you give us a recap of what you talked about last week? Yep, it is Christmas in
3: September, for sure. Yeah, we've made it to the New Testament, as we talked about last week, and we kicked off our, uh, our New Testament portion of the greater story by looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, uh, the birth of Jesus. And, you know, one thing I, I talked about if you were not able to listen to the sermon, was just what is what is God trying to speak to us and say through Matthew, you know, through this account of the virgin birth and through this account of the wise men and, you know, looking back at these, you know, Matthew quotes a lot of prophecies that happened. And what is God trying to say? And I think, you know, I mentioned yesterday that God's really trying to show us the supernatural nature of Jesus, that Jesus is divine. He's the divine son of God who comes and takes presence with with his people um, and brings a new kingdom. And the thing was that everybody missed it. They had heard all these prophecies about Jesus and they expected there to be this military warrior, this king that came in and who would push back Rome and who would, you know, make Israel this amazing power like they were in the days of King Solomon. But Jesus came to bring a different kingdom uh, where it was, you know, the first is last and the last is first. And you, you see so much of that in Matthew's gospel, so just a you know just a, a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what God had been telling us for fifteen hundred years about the coming King and Messiah and Savior. Uh, but you know we have to be able to to kind of peel back the onion a little bit and move our own presuppositions out of the way, and let's look back and see what God really said about who Jesus is and why He came. And so I, I think yeah we kicked off the series by talking about Jesus is just the new King. The new King is here. And this is the king that's better than than, than Adam and Moses and David and Solomon and, and all of the kings before him. This is the true king, the divine king. Um, so it's going to be fun to unfold the life of Jesus and see how Jesus fulfills all the things that God promised would come in his life for us.
1: So, yeah, I'm really excited about this new series. And then there's there was obviously some uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that, you know, predicted this happening. There was one we were just talking about earlier in Genesis, uh, Darren. Help us out with that one.
2: Yeah, when we talk about prophecies in the Old Testament, there um, there's a, a there's a series of levels that we can see because we're so far away from it that we can see something we call double fulfillment or like near and far prophecy. Drew used some other words. Um, but it, I I really like that we're here next to the mountains in Denver, um, and we there's a really good metaphor we can use to understand this. So if you go up into a building downtown, you know that that's pretty high up, and you can see multiple levels of mountains. You can you can get a telescope and you can zoom in on like the foothill, or like yeah the the first level of mountains like Dinosaur Ridge is the first big you know, hump that, that really feels like you're in the mountains as soon as you cross it. But then you can also look a bit deeper and you can see Mount Evans. Or if you look down to the south, you can see Pikes Peak. Um, and, and you you can zoom in on those from a long distance away. But from our vantage point, you can see multiple levels of mountains and heights of mountains. So imagine if you're an Old Testament person and you are um, you, you living in Israel during the reign of Jesus. Or not, uh, David, yeah, sorry, David. Um, and you read this this prophecy um, from Genesis 49, verse 10, that says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The context of that verse is Jacob blessing his sons. And he's telling Judah, his son, who I think is actually the fourth son. He, he's definitely not the firstborn. He might be 3rd I'm not sure. Um, but uh, he is the one who kind of is elevated to the firstborn status and and jacob prophesies that hey there's going to be a line of kings someone who holds a scepter and unites the nations through your line we don't really get that until the reign of king david he is the one who is the king and he is um he unites all of israel all 12 tribes and then um we can also see if we zoom back further So like that one, if if you're at the time, you're like right up against the mountains, you can only see that first one. But if we back up and like, like me traveling from Kansas a lot, when we get to say Byers or Flagler, you know, we can start to see the mountains. You see more of the, of the range. And so we can see that there's multiple fulfillments here because Jesus comes from the line of Judah and the line of David. And so Jesus ultimately is the King through whom like he will hold the scepter and reign forever. And he is reigning right now. And so there's this multiple layers of fulfillment that we see. And Drew, I think, did a great job talking about, uh, was it Isaiah 9 or 7 with King Ahaz in there? Yeah. Yeah. And and that if you're in that moment, you can see how it's talking about something that's happening then. But also if we take a step back and and allow some time to, to happen, we can see multiple levels.
3: Yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting when you think about prophecy, you know, some people just gig out on prophecy and they just love it. And, but for a lot of people, it just, it goes over your head and it's hard to get your mind around. And you grow up, if you grew up in the church, you know, you end up hearing some of these most famous prophecies like Isaiah seven, right? That there's going to be a virgin, she's going to have a child and, you know, it's going to be the name Emmanuel. And I think one of the challenges is there are prophecies like Isaiah 53, Where it talks about the suffering servant that is forward looking to Jesus and to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. But there's a lot of prophecies that have this double fulfillment, like you just said, Darren. So you're looking at the foothills, and then if you can step back far enough, then you're going to be able to see the mountain peaks. And I think the challenge is for us Christians, we have a habit of getting, of looking at it from the far, ultimate fulfillment piece. But then when we hear that there's a near, or partial fulfillment it kind of messes with us a little bit and we begin to question it so like if, if you've never heard that in the isaiah 7 prophecy that there's something going on with king ahaz and then somebody brings that up to you then it, c- it could potentially kind of cause you to doubt god's prophecies a little bit you could say well hold on a second now, that doesn't make sense i thought this was just talking about jesus and so I think it's important for us to be able to understand how prophecies work. So you're right. If I'm living there in the moment in 700 BC, whatever it was, 744 BC or whatever Isaiah wrote this, you know, Isaiah has no idea. He's talking about Jesus. He thinks he's solving a problem right there with King Ahaz. And so I think we just need to be able to learn, our, to, learn to read our Bibles correctly. You know, as Hank Hanegraaff used to say, read our Bibles for all they're worth, right? And, and, and read them literarily and understand that. God used these prophets ultimately or often to talk about a, a near and a far or a partial and an ultimate promise. And we see all things, you know, like the Bible says, you know, G- in Jesus we find the yes and amen to everything. Well, we find the yes and amen to these prophecies
1: as well when they're fulfilled ultimately. And I know when I start thinking of prophecy, I start going all the way to the book of Daniel and Revelation. So we'll we'll save that for another day. <laughs> but that's where it's like all the stuff that still is yet to be yeah, to be accomplished
2: but a lot of that and especially in revelation is is local like you you right. can't take that out of first century context too
1: yes which is the the crazy part of even where I think especially in this series where you guys have done a great job of putting the culture and context into the verses and what's going on with these guys and what so because I you know when you try to read it in you know in 2022 America and understand what's going on without the culture and context there's some mm-hmm. clear differences and just ask kirk cameron right, <laughs> right? how he, he stopped returning my calls so um so we, sp- we just spoke about prophecy but what about the genealogies of jesus like and the importance of those two like they're, they're talking about in matthew and luke what are the importance of the genealogies and why they matter
2: so I'll jump in. Um, there's genealogies in both Matthew and Luke. Uh, Matthew starts it off with his gospel, and then Luke uh, waits a, a chapter or two, I think to the end of chapter two. Um, and there are differences in this genealogy. It's kind of interesting. Matthew, if you realize that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, there are some specific people and uh, order of things of these people that um, that Matthew includes. And so the first person you read about You know, you, Jesus, the son of David, son of Abraham, he kind of sets that out. There's, there's, there's groupings here, um, where Jesus or Matthew goes back to Abraham, but Luke goes back to God, like an Adam as the son of God and showing how Jesus is the son of God. So there's a difference right there, just in how far back they go. One of the most interesting thing about uh, the Matthew genealogy is the number of people that he includes. Um, this is getting a little bit deep and a little bit... Um, I'm always skeptic of these things, but, but it's true in this case. Uh, if you assign numbers to the name of David, you have D, V, D. You're going to get the numbers 4, 6, and 4. If you add those up, you get 14. If you go through the genealogy of Jesus, you get three sets of 14 people. And every group of 14 has, has a unique Ending and so the the last one, of course, is, is Abraham. But then you also get the center person uh, of this whole genealogy is King David, and then it keeps going all the way back, well, uh, up up to to Mary. Um, and so that's a really cool thing about Matthew. Whereas in Luke, um, Luke is more about about writing to Gentiles, and so he is is trying to trace the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to the Creator God. How how Jesus is is the Creator of the world. And Luke is more about just overall salvation history that includes the Gentiles. Whereas Matthew is more about like Jewish kingship. And that's why he includes the Kings and especially David is the center. He's, he's the hinge point in which his whole genealogy rolls off of. And so it's just interesting, the different audiences that these two are being written to cause them to write different genealogies. There are actually people missing in these genealogies. And so um, it's, it, it, it could be a little bit weird if, if you don't realize that, or even if once you do realize that. But instead of saying like, uh, Abihud, the father of Elia came or whatever, uh, it, it's more, more, more accurate to say the ancestor of. So it's not like a direct descendant because there are people missing. It's more accurate from the Greek there to say just descendant.
1: So Drew, would yeah. you say people got cut? Like you, it's like you got cut from the basketball team. There's people, <laughs> in, there's people in the genealogy like, oh, and we cut Drew out because, well, he probably did something. He wasn't worth putting in. He just in. wasn't. Yeah, he just wasn't as important enough, you know.
3: <laughs>
2: well, it, they they don't say uh, your they don't say Bathsheba; they say the wife of Uriah, and that that's like trying to to prevent a little bit of that that story from coming into play, right? You don't oh, you don't really want to include the sin of David in there,
3: right? Mm-hmm. Oh, but I, you know what I do love about this, you know, if you look at Matthew's genealogy, as Darren mentioned, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and so he he's he's tracing it through. So much of the stories and the history that the Jewish faith would have held on to. So, you know, you start to see here, you know, you see, see look at all the names of the of, of the ladies that you use, you know, like in verse three, it says in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, Zerah by Tamar, you know, and so you get Tamar in there. And you get down a little further and you get, you know, you get, you get Salmon or salmon, however you want to say it. You know, I think it was Salmon, actually the father of Boaz by Rahab, right? So there's Rahab, you know, and again, it's like, hold on, he's bringing a, you know, a, you know, a prostitute into this or a woman of the night into this, you know, it's like, wow. Um, And then you get Ruth in here and, and it's just, it's really cool. And then you see, obviously he brings in, you know, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. I, I just love that, and you'll notice too, in the first two chapters of Matthew, and Matthew does this really throughout the whole book. But he he does so he quotes so many Old Testament references and prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and all these guys. So he's speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, whereas Luke doesn't do as much name dropping. You know, Luke doesn't quote as off as much of the Old Testament prophets as Matthew does, and in Luke. You know, he, he, I love how Luke does this. So in Luke chapter three, verse 23, it's genealogy of Jesus, genealogy of Jesus says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son. And then the ESV puts this in brackets as was supposed of Joseph, right? So it's like, he was the son of Joseph, but not really, right? He, he, he's actually the son of the Holy Spirit, um, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the line so you can see the genealogy that we trace back to Adam and back to God. So I, I do love the personal touches, as Darren mentioned, of Matthew and Luke, how their audience is different and how they speak directly to that audience, even though um, we have it in our hands today in the same book, in the same language. it, it just, it, it, God is just, I love how particular God gets when he breathed the words of the gospel into Matthew and Luke.
1: And wasn't Luke written for, to like a benefactor, like he was getting paid to be out and be a researcher for this. So would that have, you know, his audience would have been probably more towards who was the, and who was the benefactor? Yeah, Most
2: excellent Theophilus. Most excellent. Most excellent
1: Rob. So like if I was writing something for Darren, I'm sure I'd be, you know, there'd be more Midwestern references and stuff about corn in there just because, you know, it it would relate to Darren. Wheat. Sorry. Wave the (laughs) wheat. So, but, uh, So, this is a question I've been wanting to ask for months now since we finally got in the New Testament. Is it finally okay just to read the New Testament? Ooh, I will say yes.
2: (laughs) Wait, fine to just read the Old Testament? Yeah, we're done with the Old Old Testament. We just got through that.
1: Now we're just Uh, on to the new.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least for the rest
1: of the year. Turn the page. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, Drew and I have talked about this a little bit, and I think one reason we wanted to go through this whole greater story thing is because we do believe that the Old Testament is really important. And if if you like, here's the thing: I I, I do believe that you can't get the gist of of what Jesus has done for us in the New Testament. Um, but there's a certain level of like in uh, of of be, uh, what, what's the word enriching the story that when you don't get the Old Testament, it's just not as cool. So if you have the chance to read the Old Testament and get it, like you got to do it. We can't just leave it behind. Um, We we can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New. Because without the Old Testament, Jesus actually doesn't make sense. Without Genesis, without understanding what our problem is, it doesn't make sense. Without understanding why Jesus comes as a Jew— the, old, the New Testament doesn't make sense because you pick up on all these conflicts. If you read through the, the New Testament epistles, the main conflict is how are Gentiles saved? Like without, do they have to be Jews? That is a huge burning question that Paul is trying to figure out. And if you read if, if you read the New Testament epistles with that lens, all of a sudden things start to jump out at you. And it it's, it's really cool to see. So I, I do think that it's it's really important.
3: I agree. I I do think, you know, when we talk about Bible reading plans or Bible in a year and and of course, you know, we're big Bible project guys here, right? So we love the Read Scripture app. Just the sheer number of of books and verses in the Old Testament, if you if you do the Bible reading plan every year, you're gonna spend two-thirds of the year in the Old Testament, right? And and we understand that. You know, if you had to say, Drew, where should I if, if I had to carve out most of my time to spend in the Bible, over a 10-year period, where should I be? I'm going to tell you, live in the Gospels, right? I mean, spend time in the Gospels, get to know Jesus, spend time with Jesus, but don't forsake the new, the Old Testament. So I'm not, you know, you'll hear us talk about the Bible reading plan every year. And that doesn't mean that every year you have to spend, you have to read the entire Old Testament. You know, Darren might might bat an eye at that a little bit. I think you can, I think you should spend time in Genesis. I think you should spend time every year. And at least Psalms and Proverbs, right? Yeah, Psalms and Proverbs, some of the more important areas, right? Uh, But you know, that's what Gideon thinks apparently.
2: Yeah, right. right. Every time you get to a hotel room and Gideon left his book. No, he's a good. I like that Gideon guy. He's He's a a good.
3: good, He's a pretty good guy. But but I do think now you know that we're in Matthew. Man, let's as a church let's camp out in the Gospels these next couple months. We're gonna really. We're not gonna spend a ton of time in the Epistles. Really, we're not gonna even get to Acts until January. So, you know, I'm giving people, you know, I think Darren, hopefully you agree with this. Let's give people the freedom just to, man, you know, if you want to finish your Bible reading plan this year, I want to encourage you to do so, but man, camp out in the gospels and let's really get to spend time and reflecting on Jesus.
2: Yeah, but the cool thing is, and this is the caveat: now that we've been through the Old Testament, seen all these things, I, I hope that that people who are, who are in our church and following along with us are really going to be enriched by having this Old Testament context and seeing how Jesus fulfills all the things. Absolutely, uh, there, there's a book by Scott McKnight uh, called "The King Jesus Gospel," and he he goes through and he looks at every single sermon in Acts, and he he looks at the content of all of it and tries and, and makes the point that pretty much every sermon has the history of Israel in there. Now, depending on the context, like Paul, when he goes to Athens and he's preaching to a purely Greek philosopher, Stoic type of audience, he doesn't mention like Israel explicitly, but he still mentions the creative history that that God has done. Um, mm-hmm. or I think of so Stephen,
3: we, right? Stephen in Acts 6, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's going to preach the whole gospel from the Old Testament.
2: Yeah, and even the, the very first one that Peter addresses after um, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on, the, on all the people. That is an Old Testament reference. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Uh, old Testament reference. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, that Jesus is is our Messiah, the history of Israel. You read all this stuff in there. Um, and that, that f- goes through the entire book of Acts, every single sermon does. And so if it's important to the people uh, in Acts who are preaching this message, I think it's important for us as well.
3: And remembering that all of the early church leaders and early church attendees, all they would have had was the Old Testament, right? Right.
2: Their scripture was the Hebrew scripture. Right,
3: right. It wasn't until, you know, we think Matthew, maybe 45 AD at the earliest. So, you know, the church was 12 years old, 13 years old, before Matthew was ever written. Which is amazing from a biblical, from a historical, you know, literary standpoint. But if you look at that, you know, for, that means for 12, 13 years, 20 years, 30 years, churches just, you know, they were looking back at the Old Testament the entire time when they got together
1: on, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And they had all the apostles who were with Jesus to explain things to them as well.
1: Right. As we move along with our Christmas in September episode here, we're going to enrich the story of Christmas with the real manger in. <laughs> By the way, it's code when you hear, "Hey, we're going to enrich the story here." It's really code for Darren's going to ruin it for us. What yeah, we've known our whole lives. <laughs> I'm sorry, Darren. No, not really. But uh, so
2: <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Sorry, Thanks, not Ron. sorry.
1: Yeah, but uh, so in the story of Christmas, we have the you know the real manger in the inn, and you ha- you sort of have the you know Jesus and in- born swallowing clothes in the inn. Like we all have the major scene mantelpiece
2: like Yeah, if you if you make a movie, the hotel is full. Yes. Right, and they Mm -hmm. have to go out to the barn in the back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So So what a
1: mean innkeeper. Like here
3: comes this pregnant lady. Pregnant lady, send her out. You go out. Yeah. Like she's in labor.
0: And I can't
1: I can't imagine there's not a gentleman and a family going like, Oh, here's a lady about to give birth. We'll we'll, we'll share our room or do something like that here's our room
3: right. right yeah i know you just traveled you know all the way from nazareth to bethlehem on a donkey and you know it's it's the end of december so there's snow on the ground and yeah i mean
2: because it's, you know, it's so cold and frigid it, in the middle it's east so
3: cold and, yeah now <laughs> it's it, it probably is, uphill
2: both ways
1: it
3: is so funny <laughs> yeah exactly no shoes you know the whole the whole time they probably didn't have shoes though it's you know they were wearing sandals but yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to talk about Christmas and the old Christmas wives' tales, but it's also fun to enrich your view of Christmas in September, especially uh, rather than doing it in December when you're trying to put your you know manger on I feel your. Feel guilty mantel. putting my manger scene on the mantle. Yeah. So <laughs> let's let's repaint this for you. Okay, we've got Mary and Joseph, and they're riding from Nazareth, and they're they're probably not in winter, right? And they're coming all the way to Bethlehem, and they show up. And they are going to the house of their family and they knock on the door and they say, hey, we're here. And the family comes out and the family loves them. And so what do they do? Darren, where do they really sleep?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so there's a a resource out there um, by Kenneth Bailey. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he spends a lot of time just helping us as Westerners understand what a, a first century house in Israel would have been like. Um, and most of these houses were, were pretty much the same. They had, uh, they had two levels on the bottom level was kind of the great room where they spent most of their time. Upper level was, you know, sleeping quarters and stuff. There was a, there was a guest room. Most houses had a guest room that was, um, on on the far side, um, of the great room. And on the opposite side then of that guest room was the place where they brought in the animals for night. So the animals at night would provide heat just through their, their body, warmth in there and uh, you hadn't an, you had kind of it, it was a depressed it was a lower level and so then they had their feeding trough really close to the great room because it was all open. There wasn't you know dividing doors and there were pillars supporting things and stuff. So um, so the animals are, are in the, the great room with the family sleeping in the upper room, whereas a guest would sleep in the guest room. The thing was, though, that there was a census being taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, right? We have this in in Luke chapter 2. So that means that Bethlehem is full because all of these towns from which is where people are from, they're completely full. So the guest rooms in these houses of the families, they're full, and so Mary and Joseph had to sleep in the great room. That's where they were. And then when, when Jesus was born, the most logical place for, for him to be placed was in the feeding trough, which was there in the great room directly next to the place where the animals were stored for the night. And so when Jesus was placed in, in a manger, it, was just, it just made sense. It was the feeding trough there, a little concave uh, cutout. And you just made sure that the, the animals didn't eat Jesus because he was in the, the feeding trough there. And so that that's kind of the, the picture that we get. It, it wasn't an inn. There weren't really ancient hotels, right? There, there wasn't a mean person who said, no, there's no room for you. It's just, no, our, our guest room is full, so why don't you stay here instead? So it's not, unfortunately, it's not the barn out back. Um, there were animals, though. I'll, I'll, I'll grant that. There definitely were. There was a mooing cow, a lowing cow, right? Chickens or whatever other but animals. At least there,
1: at least there were uh, wise men there, right, Darren? Uh, probably a llama. <laughs> probably a llama in there too. A llama.
3: Maybe, a, maybe a screaming goat. Yeah. You know. L- let me bridge this context for you because that's what you know my my job is to do. Let me take this from from you know four <laughs> B C to twenty twenty two. So it's Christmas time at your house, and you 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 and your your lovely bride, your lovely wife, show up, and she's pregnant. And you knock on the door and you say, hey, guys, hope you got our letter. We, we're, we're coming to hang out. And you say, come on in, everybody. Welcome. Merry Christmas. Hey, grandma and grandpa are in the guest room. But since you're pregnant, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you in the living room and so you have more room to move around. But the dogs, all just so you know, the dogs sleep in the living room too. But that's okay. And then baby comes and you don't want to put the baby on the couch and you don't have you know, a bye-bye baby right down the street because it's Bethlehem. And so what you do is you grab the one thing that looks like a bassinet and it is a manger. It's a little feeding trough and you put the baby in it and you wrap them in whatever cloth you have, the little quilt that grandma brought with you. And now your baby boy is born in the living room at Christmas. Now we can talk about Christmas in a second. But so, yeah, I think it takes some of like the crude, you know, the cruelty out of it, the crudity. Right, Like, oh, this evil mange manger, this evil innkeeper, and these evil family members. It's like, no, nope. Jesus was born in the living room next to the dogs, and he got laid in the thing that looked like a bassinet.
1: And then the wise men showed up. And the wise men showed up.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I have a weird vendetta that my family <laughs> makes fun of me. Whenever we set up uh, the, the the manger scene, uh, they always put the, wi- the wise men across the house, uh, <laughs> not next to it. <laughs> So, And then this can be really quick. But in the story in, in Matthew, we, we read that the wise men came and they did their whole thing with Herod. And Herod uh, was challenged by this, this king that was uh, supposedly born. And Herod puts out an edict to kill all the boys who are ages two and under. So that gives us an idea that Jesus could have been two years old at this time. When, when the wise men actually showed up to worship him. So um, th- that's that's just me being, I don't know, what's the word? Like, vindictive, I don't know what the word is, but, but like I think it's mo- right. a desire to be real. A, f- a yeah. fight for
1: the truth? I mean,
3: yeah. it's right. If you look at, okay, so Luke 2, we do see the shepherds go and see Jesus early after he's born, right? The shep- angels tell the shepherds, the shepherds go and see Jesus and they worship him. But yeah, we the wise men probably don't come until Jesus is two or a little under. And but that's okay. I mean, people wonder, well, why is Mary, Joseph and Jesus still in Bethlehem? What's Joseph's family going to do? Are they going to send them back to Nazareth when the baby's young? You know? And, and so ultimately, yeah, they end up living with Joseph's family for a couple years while Joseph, while Jesus is growing up. And uh, again, it kind of takes the manger scene and makes it not as fun because not everybody can be there at the same time. Um, but again, you know, I, I think it, there's just it helps us put these pieces together that, yeah, is there this really interesting, supernatural, natural things going on? Yes. But we don't have to fit them all into the same weekend. Right. It happened over the course of, of time.
1: Well, no, we appreciate that. We'll dig more into this as we get closer to the actual Christmas season. I just know re- I can relate to it because I'm sure next time I run a VBRo, they'll be will be like, "Oh, you just be in the living room and don't worry; the other room just has a new young child crying the whole time." So, <laughs> yeah. so, but uh, like, oh, it's the son of son of God. Yeah, yeah. Put a put a binky in it. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, sorry. Easily, yeah. So, um. What do we have coming up on next week's sermon, Drew? Yeah, so we're
3: going to meet John the Baptist next week and talk about Jesus getting baptized and the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. And uh, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, so, you, you know, Jesus goes from uh, zero to 33
1: in one week. It just
3: goes fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, Pastor Darren Enns, thank you so much for being with us today. Any parting thoughts?
2: Uh, not this time. I've done enough. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Pastor Drew Tarwater, thank you so much. Any parting thoughts?
3: Yeah, go read Mark chapter one ahead of this week. And so you know
1: who we're talking about when we start talking about John the Baptist. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. If you have questions, send them to us at life at forefrontchurch.tv, or drop them in the communication, write them on the communication card and drop them in the box at the back of the worship center. You're at Forefront Church. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rob Blossie.
0: You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Ends of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.